Are we not the bestest of friends already? Only in media. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast that must have sustained a head injury because I'm pretty sure I just saw Val Matushkin lift a Stanley Cup. Uh, it's time to do a little stargazing with uh, with Mark and with very special guests from, from Dallas Magazine. We've got old friend David Castillo and, and new friend Mike Pellucci. How's it going, everybody? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. little D Magazine takeover here. We, we enjoy that. <laughs> we enjoy it as well. And I'm going to start... By I know we, we, we've got a run of show and it's all great. I am going to start, though, by asking one completely non-discussed question ahead of time. Just want to get y'all's take. What, as a Dallas Stars fan, is more kind of what, what would have been more jarring, right? Of course, obviously watching Nachushkin lift a cup with Colorado or seeing Julius Honka break camp next season with an NHL team. <laughs> oh, man, it's got to be Julius, right? right? I just... Yeah, yeah, no, it's I don't know how it could be Julius. I I did so before I came to D Magazine, I edited uh you know the great Sean Shapiro uh and the great Sad Yusuf over at the Athletic and the amount of Honka jokes and Honka <laughs> gate and Honka saga that consumed <laughs> those 18 months where we were all together before I moved to basketball full time, um really could, could write its own novel. So yeah, Julius Honka doing Doing uh, serious damage in any capacity would would take the cake for me. I mean, there, right? There is nothing funny to me about that at all. I, I will die on the hill that Honka, despite the sometimes kind of lack of you know pace of play, yada yada yada, I think was an NHL quality defenseman. Third pair, sheltered minutes would have been fantastic. I mean, that Jack Johnson just won a Stanley Cup, so exactly. <laughs> God damn! If he can do it, there's hope for all of us. Well, we've got a good show. It's a, the DMAG takeover. We we have, are welcoming in, you know, David and Mike have been, have become great friends uh, as we've kind of rampaged through the last season and a bit of, of Dallas Stars hockey. And, and because this is the summertime and we're, you know, able to spend some time going down different avenues and, and looking into different perspectives, we just thought this was a fantastic opportunity to bring in some um some of the folks that at least me personally, right. Some of the folks that I really follow to keep tabs on my favorite team and, and talk a little bit, you know, we're going to talk about the team itself. Of course, there's been a coaching hire. We're, we're probably going to cover that spoiler alert. Um, you know, this, this is a team that has some roster. I don't, I don't know that I would personally, when we'll get into this, go so far as to say challenges, but certainly roster decisions coming up. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, we're going to talk about, you know, draw some comparisons between the two teams we just saw finish the Stanley Cup final and where Dallas sits and what they might do to close a gap if, in fact, there is one. And, and we're also going to talk generally about the way that um, Mike and David cover the sport that we love and the team that we love because I think there's, again, the very distinct voice, very interesting voice, and it's just going to be a good one. I'm I'm optimistic. So unlike all that other dreck we put out, this is this is a podcast you should probably stick through for the whole, the whole go-round. In spite of me being here, that is entirely true. Yes, <laughs> I was going to say I've, I've really done it. Now we, we're we're yeah, no, no, no. we've got to deliver. We've got to deliver. So where where do you guys do we start with recency? Do we start with big picture? What's what what say you crew? Awkward besides awkward silence. <laughs> I, I didn't know if that, I didn't know if that was about like uh, the sort of the team in general or the coverage or if this was like Mark's turn to talk. <laughs> Why well, I, I was just gonna. 
I was just going to jump in there as, as the, as the non Texas based person here, I would, I would say, let's, let, let's kick it up a little bit and talk about the, the media market for sports and hockey in, in Dallas and Texas in general. And, uh, and what brought DMAG to, to not only dabble their toes in there, but, but to really, uh, put out some great stuff this last year. Yeah, I, I love that because it does seem like there's been a lot more and, and a lot higher quality, much much thanks to you two. So, yeah, let, let's start there and tell us a little bit about, you know, your your individual journeys and, and DMAG as well, getting into um, getting into the stars. Yeah, I mean, I guess I can start with this, you know, so D Magazine's been around for 40 plus years at this point, almost 50. And I, for me, you know, somebody who grew up in Dallas, I always thought that it covered the city better than anyone. But what it didn't do is it didn't cover sports on a full-time basis, right? I am the first sports editor at the magazine. The position did not exist before uh, I basically approached them with this idea. And uh, as I mentioned before, I was at The Athletic, and I was looking to potentially make a change depending on what was out there. And I had freelanced for D. Uh, I'd done a story for the magazine in 2019. And I'd become good friends with my editor, uh, a guy named Zach Crane, who's still there. And I called up Zach one day uh, in last year, last spring, and I said, hey, basically what I just said to you guys, which is just I have so much respect for the publication, but nobody does sports here full time. I think that's an opportunity. Would you agree? Is there something that we can kind of do with that? Or, and so that led to a lot of conversations with him, with Tim Rogers, who runs the magazine, uh, and Matt Goodman, who runs online. Most importantly, uh, our owner, Christine Allison, who you know is in charge of everything. We are a family-owned magazine, a family-owned media company. We are one of the last ones that are scale that can really say that. It's a long story short, they agreed and they brought me in here and they sort of, I was initially thinking I would just do a bunch of writing and they said, no, you got to build something. So from there, it was really a blank slate of what do I want to see and what do I want to read? And so the vision that I had in a lot of ways is something that you know, this is a sports writing town, and I think there's a lane in between what the papers do and what the athletic does. Of the papers do a great job of covering everything on an event basis, right? They're everywhere. But whether it's purview, whether it's space, whether it's just what they want to do, they don't always necessarily go deeper beyond the games a lot of the time. And then you have the athletic, which is super deep, super nuanced, but not everyone wants something, you know, there's a barrier to entry, both in terms of paywall, which frankly support journalism, you should subscribe to the athletic and subscribe to the papers and support journalism that you like. Uh, but also not everyone wants to necessarily read that level of depth. It's a little intimidating. And so the idea was, okay, we're going to tell stories because that's what D has been known for first and foremost. But when we do non-reported stuff, it has to be smart and kind of fill that middle lane of have some voice, but write more in the 1500 word range versus the 3000 or the 800. Um, and that's the broad purview. And then within there, you know, it kind of just, you know, you have different voices that you know it when you see it. You know, I didn't know what I wanted every person to look like. There are some people here who I've worked with before. There are some who are new. Uh, truthfully, the, David, uh, I don't even know if David knows this. David was the, the last person I brought in of the original crew. And I've been looking for the right stars person. And I give you all a lot of credit defending Big D because you were the ones who were publishing him. And I was just like, I've never heard of this guy, but he's really smart. And that led to me sending him a blind email and us getting on the phone and saying, let's try this out and see what happens. And so it's really all evolved from there. And, you know, David, you could you could, I guess, take it from your perspective. But for me, it's just been, you know, I have people 
who write similarly to David in different sports, but I also have ones who write very differently. There's no one size fit all template. It just has to be smart and it has to have voice and it has to think big picture beyond just what's right in front of your face. And David does a phenomenal job at all of that. I love that as a segue. Yeah. So, so that's, you know, from your, from your perspectives now we'll bring David into the conversation. So from the outside, right. When did you become aware of the EMAC? Like, tell us your side of how that conversation started and sort of what you saw as your opportunity, your lane, I guess, as it were, to to move over and start working with Mike. I think it was for one, like to be paid in more than just breakfast tacos for a change, <laughs> like writing articles and and honestly, I didn't know anything about Deep Magazine, you know, because like, yeah, sure, you know, I, I'm sort of from that area. And and really am trying to move back to Dallas, but also like I've been in San Antonio for most of my life, so uh, I do really nothing. But I was <laughs> I didn't know this until after the fact, aware of like Mike's work, right? So Mike, you know, won't mention like a lot of the great pieces he's written, uh, like <laughs> um, his work at the Outline, and also the intercollegiate meat judging article he wrote for Sports <laughs> Illustrated. Like, if you guys haven't read that, the famous intercollegiate yes. meat judging. <laughs> Texas Tech to the album of that stuff, guys. <laughs> so I, I really have like nothing to add there, like just zero. It's just like, oh, um, D Magazine, never heard of it. Let me like, you know, read a few pieces. Oh, seems nice. And and then, you know, from there, like Mike was just kind of willing to uh, <laughs> publish you, my sort of you real American dollars for your work. Yes, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, that and like my, my sort of brand of kind of hyper opinionated uh, stars coverage. Oh, I love it. So, so okay. So that's that's what drew you, drew you together, and and kind of taught. What was the first, and maybe there wasn't, but was there a moment, a story, kind of a happening with the team where you you kind of first got that sensation of, oh, this this is a good thing, right? This is working. This there's something here. In terms of working with David directly, or in terms of people like really, this resonated with people. Ooh, why why not both? <laughs> so I really think it's I'll answer the last one. Well, the first one's easy, which is just like I, you can tell pretty early on that whether you like working with someone and David is just a, a total champion about, you know, he understands that when I push him on something, it's only to make it better. It's only to make the piece the best version of what it could be. And truthfully, I don't feel like I have to do that too, too much because he he tends to nail the thrust of everything he's doing right for the jump for the most part. Um so that's easy in that sense, you know, but uh, in you know the bigger picture as far as when it started resonating, you know, the first indication of it was actually when David went to Noche Mexicana um, and he wanted to write about that. And he did a beautiful piece about it. It's only really partially about hockey. It's about identity. It's about, uh, you know, about family. It's about so many different things. And the beauty of a D Magazine audience is that that's the sort of piece that there might be other sports publications where you do that. And it doesn't hit. And here at D, because we're, you know, the audience is conditioned to want to read about the city. Uh, they it really latched on more than anything else had at that point. I knew we'd been doing good work, um, but that was the first thing that kind of really struck a nerve. I think in the broader audience, as far as actual hockey things, I really think it's been the last two months. You know, hockey I knew for us would be a little bit more of a climb for the audience to get to. Not because we weren't doing great work, but because you know it's look, it's you got the Cowboys who are the Cowboys. People will always read Cowboy things. With the Mavericks, we had just a really div a really wide-ranging cast of characters and writers from day one, both between me being in-house, Zach being in-house, 
We have three other people who freelance for us who all do very different things. Um, and most of them already have really big, strong, built-in audiences. And, I mean, listen, Luka Doncic is the biggest athlete in the city. So when you put all that together, people will read Mavericks things right off the jump. The Rangers, Jamie Newberg, has, is the OG of covering that sport. Jamie, everywhere he goes, people want to read him. With hockey, I knew what David could do. I knew what we could do together. But I think it took more proof of concept. But really, since the playoff run, when I think we – you know, we started doing, uh, we called it what we saw, what it felt like, where basically David would write 400 words about what he saw in the game that night, and I would write 400 words on vibes, essentially. And we did that for every playoff game. And then leading into the offseason, when everybody's attention is at a fever pitch, and David's just been on a rampage week after week after week writing great columns. Now is when I think people are getting it. Now is when I think people, the secret is out about how good this guy is. And you all knew you were here on the ground floor, you know, and I give you credit because if it weren't for a defending big D, I would not know who this man is. But now I think people are starting to see what he can do. So I give him a lot of credit for making that happen. And now I think uh, truly with everything with the site, I I think we're only going to keep getting better as time goes on. But now with hockey, I'm so proud of the fact that like, not only do I think that he and I do great work together and we're in a groove, but people are figuring it out. And that's exciting because now it's like, all right, if you're already here and you already get it, what can we do for a full season of this as the stars start a new era with DeBoer? Yeah, and, and we're going to get into Dallas as a team, absolutely. But I, I do want to spend just a little bit more time talking about process and, and talking about the, the work itself first. And, and want to start as well. I love that you touched on sort of the variety of teams that that shape Dallas and, and kind of vie for that that space. How would you describe personally, and David, I want you to chime in on this one as well, but how would you describe the city as a hockey town? Hmm. David, do you want to go first? I, you know, honestly, like I, I don't, I again, like I don't know where to start because for me, like Dallas is just not a hockey town. It's It's a sports town. And so if Dallas is successful, like maybe you get some some primetime coverage. But, uh, you know, for the most part, it's just like ice and Texas weather. These don't go together. And and I, I don't what my place in that. I don't know. I just I just want to just write material that I think is that uncomplicates uh, <laughs> the the hockey world that I think is sometimes overcomplicated. Well, I'll, I'll put it this way, right? Because for me, this is bigger than just D. You know, I edited at the Athletic, and I edited Sean and I and Saad, and that's that platform at the Athletic. It encourages so much direct interaction between commenters and readers. It's something that they do very well, and I think the way that I view it is always that the it's sort of small but fierce, right? I don't think the stars, you know, audience that's built in is quite as big as some of the as the other three teams a lot of the time, unless, you know, give or take a really big run. I think people were really invested in 2020 for obvious reasons, but by and large, I don't know if there's quite the same breadth. And I think some of that is just, you know, maybe it's the climate. Some of it is just, I think if you haven't played hockey, it's to me the hardest barrier to entry sport to learn out of the big four. But I think the stars fans who are invested, I don't think there's a more rabid fan base. I don't think there's one that's more passionate than this one. I mean, and I know from talking to Sean and talking to Saad, who are on the beat every day, you know, they are so invested. And so uh, it's interesting because, you know, as we talk about where this organization is going writ large, uh, this is kind of the dynamic that they have to consider, which is that their core audience, I, I don't think, is leaving. I think the core audience will always be passionate, but it's a matter of how do you widen that? How do you get more people into it? And I do think that affects a lot of how the team actually operates. Well, yeah, I, I like that description. That's as an outsider, I've always kind of felt the same way, right? That I would say that 
on a per fan basis, right? The the stars fans that I interact with um, and speak with are every bit as knowledgeable as fans of, of what you might consider more, you know, larger hockey markets. Like we know our stuff. I, I put them up against anyone, but I do think there is that vibe of it ebbs and it flows depending on how the team is doing. And I think the, you know, the bankruptcy obviously was, was an, uh, more of an ebb and, and, you know, 2020 has been more of a, you know, been flowing a little bit more since then, but those of us that that kind of stick through it thick and thin, there's there's a, a combativeness that I've I've really come to appreciate. Like a, a, a stars fan is going to have an opinion, and that opinion isn't necessarily going to be, you know, well, if the team is good, everything must be good. Therefore, I won't complain, right? Like the, a stars fan is gonna, is, is, we're not pulling any punches. Well, and the thing is, what what always puzzled me about the Dallas market, and, and here especially over the last couple of years since the Lindy Ruff days, is I, I agree the the Dallas fans that we get are are incredibly knowledgeable and dedicated. But for your casual fan who's going to be a Cowboy fan and a Ranger fan and a Maverick fan, um, what brings them in to AAC to watch a hockey game, and I just never quite understood from a business point of view how this team could justify playing what everybody in the hockey world views as as boring hockey as, as something in a non-traditional market that you're trying to sell. And and so yeah. I, I don't understand how the, the leadership group with the, with its Dallas Stars has what's their business plan? I mean, it's, yeah, I, I agree with a lot of that, actually. Um, and I, I think it's, look, I don't think it's breaking any news that, you know, this team, the reason that they often hover in the middle is they are terrified of irrelevance. They are terrified of people losing interest in the team and being that fourth team in the market. And, it, well, theoretically, it's, if you lose, that's a very quick way to make that happen. You know, I would counter that one uh, you know, we can talk more about this in the context of the coaching hire. But if you look at the current core of this roster, right, if you're if you're building blocks are Rope Hins and Jason Richardson and Miro Haskinen and Jake Ottinger, you can't actually be that bad, right? It's really hard to be terrible if those are your four building blocks spread across four different positions. So given that, why not take a little more risk? Because, yeah, it's setting aside the looming specter of the Cowboys, because nobody will ever be the Cowboys in this market, not even the Mavericks, right? It's never going to happen. Uh, and setting aside the Rangers who, you know, there's a lot of baseball tradition in Texas, but at least for another year or so, they're frisky right now, but they're not actually good yet. Just look at who they share the building with. If you are competing, you know, we live in an inflation world now, and people have to choose how to spend the recreational dollars very carefully. And if you are in the same building with the team that just got to the Western Conference Finals in the NBA, and they have the most exciting athlete in town, uh, how do you tell casual fans if they're choosing between, well, should I go to the AAC on Tuesday night to see the Stars or see the Mavs on a Wednesday? Well, if the Mavericks are closer to a championship, theoretically, than the Stars are, and you know we could debate how true that is going forward, but this past year they certainly were, and they have a guy who is just – human electricity and meanwhile the stars are playing hockey that is it can be a rough watch sometimes it doesn't matter if you're winning it doesn't matter if you're a playoff team that's not inner that's not competitive entertainment a lot of the time and that's i'm with you it's the part that absolutely flummoxes me because i don't know how they get out of it and this was their chance to do that and i do think it'll be more entertaining and more productive than it was but 
they also could have taken a much bigger risk that I think could have yielded a much bigger reward. Yeah, but I think it's the it's you can and it's funny to me because this you can trace this through like we talk about organizational philosophies, right? This has influenced you know three coaching hires. It's influenced roster management. It's influenced systems decisions, right? This is a team that is wants its floor as high as possible without necessarily caring it's it's a team you know everything from you know hiring ken hitchcock to montgomery to sticking with bonus it's a team that plays miro haskinen on his offside because they can <laughs> cover for a, a you know lesser partner on that you know it's it's as an organization you're you're exactly right it is a team that would would rather succeed moderately than fail well right? and the thing is if you're going to err on the side of uh, of being overloaded on the defensive or offensive end in a non-traditional market, you have to make that error on the offensive end because that's what's exciting. And it's, look, just the way that they've drafted and the way the future of this organization, organization stacks up, they have the personnel to do that. So why yeah. not why not lean into this with, you know, uh, a Mark Savard, for instance? Why not optimize your talent, not even just for the entertainment perspective, but because... If you want to optimize your pieces, you got to play the hand you're dealt. What you're dealt is a lot of exciting offensive talent coming up. Why muzzle that? Why hinder that for the sake of balance versus just, I mean, if, you know, look who won the cup, a team that embraced offense. Um, I don't know. We could get more into all of this, but it's uh, it's tricky because it doesn't just affect the on-ice product. It affects the off-ice product, too, and that's pretty relevant for a team that isn't trying to hide too much that the on ice product and the off ice product are very intertwined for them. They're just, I don't know if they're taking the right lessons from that approach. Yeah. And it's, it's always going to be a little tough if, if, if some of your major superstars are, are fins just because fins aren't uh, your most uh, gregarious people out there, but certainly you can take somebody like Tyler Sagan and, and market him. Um, and, and, and you're going to do a lot more about Tyler Sagan as a goal scorer than you are about him being a 200-foot you know, uh, two-way center. Yeah, and I mean, I don't think Tyler is the problem in that regard, right? I think people know who Tyler is. I think the idea of Tyler has survived in a lot of ways, even as his game has suffered through all these injuries, you know? But, like, look, you know, I'm with you that, you know, Miro is hardly the most talkative guy. But, again, look who else is in your building. Luka Doncic doesn't talk to the media very much. He's just a shyer guy who doesn't enjoy doing that a lot. Um, so it's not like the superstar who is looming over them is this, you know, is Dirk, for instance. You know, when the Mavericks were really rolling the last era, Dirk Nowitzki was so beloved in town. It was so accessible. I don't know if Luka will become that. He's 23 and took Dirk until his late 20s to be that way. But... The fact is, it's not like the competition is, you know, in your face with marketing promotion of a guy who wants to be talking all the time. It's just that guy's really exciting. And there are really exciting talents on the stars. I just don't know if – check that. We know that they haven't done those things to optimize those exciting players on the ice themselves. Right, exactly. And, and you take a look at, you know, you go back to Mike Madonna and what's your your, your vision is him him heading up the ice with the hair blown in the wind. And, you know, the, the, the tie between Madonna and, and Rope Hintz is, is like an obvious marketing ploy. And I don't have anything to like add because I feel like I've just written thousands upon thousands of words of like these like exact issues, except that I think the other thing that's really kind of uh, defined the kind of dysfunction is just the lack of being on the same page. When you look at a team like 
Colorado and the relationship Joe Sackick has with Chris McFarlane, his right-hand man, and the people they brought in. Yes, contrary to what Pierre Maguire tells you, analytics were a big part of that. Uh, the people they brought in, like Dawson Spriggins, who used to kind of talk about expected gold models all the way back in 2015. Eric Parnas, who did the great special teams project, analytics behind that 20% of the game. Um, you, what you see is everybody on the same page. And the same is true of like Carolina, um, the way they draft. And and even Toronto, like for as much criticism and grief as they get, um, I think they still broadly get it, even if they're cursed and still make dumb decisions. But Dallas does like they just they don't have that like coherency from top to bottom you know the the situation with like bringing Hitchcock in despite Neil's vision and the Jim Lights ran <laughs> which is to me still one of the most hilarious things especially his comment about the player's daughter's wedding I don't know if anybody remembers that and we don't have to like rehash that just because I, I think we should <laughs> I should note that predated my time at The Athletic. I got there uh, probably a few months after that one, so I missed the party. That was one of the first things I think David asked me when uh, when I told him I edited Sean. He's like, oh, my God, did you edit the horse shit thing? I was like, nah, before my time. I still, I still proudly wear that shirt. It's fantastic. And, David's and, just looking for boundaries. And as time has passed, maybe not as – I mean, obviously not something that you say and, you know, calling out players, blah, blah, blah. But as time has passed, not exactly the, you know, uncalled-for shot that that I think it gets portrayed at sometimes. Yeah, I mean, the, the only thing that strikes me as odd is is you have Jim Neal and, and just – you know, the, the whole organization is kind of built on this family atmosphere where where everybody's welcome. And, and then you just have these these bolts from the sky that are that are just 180 degrees opposite of of, of that image. And, and, and it makes you scratch your head a little bit. But, uh, you know, again, I guess this is this is kind of leaning to the inconsistency point that was being made. You know, what 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 is the the absolute focus of this team in the past and moving forward? And I think it also really emphasizes just the fact that they were able to hone in in the in the crassest way possible. Ben and Sagan, precisely because nobody was helping them like nobody. And that yeah. falls on management not giving them secondary scoring, the lack of drafting prior to nil, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's been a one-line team since the days of, of you know, Jason Spezza, right? And it's the, the line has changed, right? The cast of characters have um, have adjusted, but we went from, you know, Ben Sagan Spezza to Ben Sagan Radulov to, um, you know, Robertson Pavelski hence. So it's, it's, and I, I love as well that you brought up the Toronto example, right? Because, you know, they've gone, they've taken shots, right? And, and you could argue from, from a certain perspective that they're not necessarily much better off than Dallas in terms of end results over that time, but, you know, Kyle Dubas and they've, they've done things to try and, you know, move the team in a direction versus kind of doubling down on what already, you know, doubling down on the status quo. Well, I think with Toronto, it's also important to view it through, again, this mandated Dallas. We don't want to be irrelevant. Toronto will always be relevant, right? Mm -hmm. They are, they are the Cowboys of Canada. So, you know, this isn't to justify Dallas's approach, but it is to say that Toronto could do whatever the hell they want and people will froth in the mouth regardless. Um, but yeah, I mean, your point about the, about the one line team. Yeah. It's, that's absolutely top of mind. That was what I asked Peter DeBoer about at the press conference last week. It was because he talked a lot about scoring depth and he does have a track record for doing that. And so that was what I wanted to know. Okay, well, how? 
because you're not you're you're trying to overcome. And I brought up the example last year, but you're right; it stretches a lot further. He's going against a lot of organizational uh, tradition, for better or worse, and mostly worse, by trying to break the stars of that habit and distribute some of this up and down the lineup. Well, and can I ask a question as well? Right, a thought has occurred to me. You know, Dallas you know, is not Toronto and that extends to like revenue streams and whatnot. And, and a, a very common, you know, a, a big thing in the NHL, right, is the the playoff games aren't aren't part of the original budget, right? So anytime you can make the dance, every home game you have can have a significant impact on an NHL squad's bottom line. Do you think that some of the influence on that style, you know, there's there's the relevancy argument, right? If, if the Dallas Stars aren't in the playoffs, um, you know, is that going to have a meaningful impact on on their place in the market? But do you think that there's a more, you know, basic financial necessity as well as they need, you know, they need to have home playoff games to maintain, you know, the the stature that they they see for themselves? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it's especially relevant after the pandemic. I mean, Tom Gaglardi's core businesses are hotels and restaurants, you know, so there you go. You talk about things that took a hit uh, post 2020. So, yeah, I think I don't know how relevant to this. Obviously, I'm not in the financial office, but I, I do think it's a factor. Certainly, I think it's a factor at least as important as other markets, possibly more. I don't think it's something that you could dismiss. Um, and I, that isn't to presume that their goal is just to get to the playoffs, right? You know, with the way that yeah. some soccer teams in Europe, it's get to the Champions League and catch the windfall and then that's that. But yeah, I think it certainly matters. Well, and part of why I bring that up, right, is, is it is it is fair to say that Dallas has been short-sighted in certain ways. Um, but it is also unfair to criticize the team for lack of ambition, as bizarre as that sounds, because while they have perhaps pursued a path that emphasizes safety over, you know, over reward, they've generally been a cap team. They've been unafraid to spend money on free agents, right? They've they've yep. gone after, you know, they they threw money at Radulov, they threw money at Pavelski, they they, you know, signed Ben and Sagan to big deals. You know, unless your name is John Klingberg, the team has been unafraid to to pay. So it's it's almost it's it's kind of strange to talk about them sometimes because in some ways they are very self-limiting, but in other ways they are very aggressive. And it's it's a very strange thing to as a fan sometimes. Well, I just like, look, if nothing else, we live in the era of tanking. And I get that more fans, especially savvy fans, are willing to endure some short-term pain for long-term gain. And I generally endorse that thinking. I think, listen, I think if the world operated in every sphere with more long-term thinking in mind, we'd probably be in a better place. But there is something to be said for the fact that in a world where a lot of teams are just willing to say, screw it, we're going to write off three years. And, you know, if you want to get season tickets, have fun watching terrible sports, the stars try. The Stars try every single year to win as many games as they can. And that's that's kind of novel now, but that's also something to be admired, even if, you know, it leads to outcomes that aren't necessarily the most, you know, I guess, high ceiling in some ways. They mm-hmm. try. If you are paying to go see this team, you are seeing a team that really gives a shit about the outcome night in, night out. Yeah. I can't think of, like, a greater indictment, though, like, in its own way. <laughs> I, mean, I get it. I get I mean, it, right? It's complicated. This team, what you're seeing is a team that cares. <laughs> they care. About so what? About what? I have no idea, right? <laughs> <laughs> so then let's let's start to segue uh, and, 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 and talk about the team 
Uh, actually, I, I take that back. We're going to talk about the team itself in one sec. I want to ask one more question, and I'm going to be incredibly selfish, but this is sort of what's drawn me as a reader to D Magazine. And, and one of the things that, that I've noticed is, and, and this extends to, you know, whether it's us at, at Defending Big D, whether it's The Athletic, whoever, there's, there's this push-pull right now in hockey coverage where, you know, it's almost like we're we're trying to figure out how much in the way of analytical thinking the audience can actually take and is actually interested in. And one of the things that's drawn me, you know, initially at DBD, David, and then to your coverage at D Magazine, both you and Mike, is you're unafraid to drop a, a coursey on us or or you know a chart of some kind. And, and the advanced analytics side of the sport has very much become a part of your conversation, despite that not always being the most comfortable thing or familiar thing for fans. And so I wanted to talk very briefly or potentially not briefly, depending on, on how much you want to talk, but how, how do you approach a story? Is it conscious? How do you make a decision kind of how much depth to go into in pursuit of the point you're trying to make? Oh, it's extremely conscious. It's one of the biggest things that I've thought about because again, this lane between the papers and the athletic, the athletic is going to give you that type of coverage all the time at a very deep level. But most importantly, they're going to assume you know what they're talking about. And for good reason, it's it mostly caters, you know, the traditional base has always been hardcore sports fans. Now it's getting adding more casuals to the mix. But people who subscribe and especially people hockey was the athletics first, you know, bell cow. So people who subscribe wanted and that crave that depth that you won't see as many of those in newspaper coverage, right? It's catering towards a wider audience. So for us in the middle lane, I I tell David, and David could talk about this more, but my thinking is always, you know, and I'm fortunate to work at an outlet that has a history of across the board of very smart readers. So why should we be any different in sports? And so I want to think the best of my readers, but I want to do it in a way that if we're using stats, we are not presuming that every single reader knows. So it's, yeah, David's going to use all kinds of data, just like Istok Franco does for the Mavericks for us. Just like, um, you know, we had a piece today from a guy named Aiden Davis, who uh, is over blogging the boys, your, your sister site. And he's going to do some cowboy stuff for us. And he wrote about CeeDee Lamb. And he dropped a whole bunch of data in there. But the key is explain the stats. Make sure it's accessible. Because if you know these things, you, you blow right by the explanation. You know what you're getting and you're excited for the deep data. If you don't, you're going to learn things. And one of the best tweets that I've gotten over the course of the season was from someone who thanked us because and really this is David, because this is David's purview, not me, but that he was learning about hockey a lot more by reading us. And that's the whole end game for me is if you already know, great, you're still going to learn things because we're going to give you smart coverage and we're not afraid to challenge our readers. But if you don't know, we're going to challenge you. We're going to assume that you could keep up, but we're still going to give you the ramp into the story. We're not going to say, oh, figure it all out later. Go off the page and Google these things. No, we're going to tell you what basically you need to understand for the context so that then you can get these smart arguments. I don't ever want to assume the worst of our readers. I just want to make sure that I'm not being unfair and expecting, you know, or I guess being unfair and potentially crowding out new readers to the conversation, right? Now, maybe you want to learn, maybe this is your first time, you know, like I said, we've been building up hockey coverage throughout the year, you know, now more people than ever are reading what we're doing. Maybe this is your first time reading David. So why should you be penalized because you just learned and you know, about us and what we're doing and you want to come into the conversation, but you don't necessarily know as much hockey stuff. That's why it's important. And David, I'm sure has been annoyed so many times this year when I've flagged things into Google Doc editing saying, explain <laughs> this stat, give a runway for this stat. But it's so that people can feel welcome and included in the hockey conversation. But also you guys who are reading and know this stuff, 
you're not getting anything dumbed down. So ideally, we try to have it as the best of both worlds in that regard. I'm glad Mike kind of speaks to sort of the using kind of quote unquote analytics, which I just call information, but, you know, using analytics to really uncomplicate things, because ultimately, I think that's what they do. Like the reason why I got interested into kind of using sort of analytics as, as kind of like a springboard for kind of just general analysis was the fantastic pension plan puppets who had a better free agency date, Dave Notice or Potato. And it was <laughs> it was all about just, you know, this is when they were given like uh, like goons like Frazier, McLaren, and Colton Orr, like million, like $1.2 million contracts, bringing in David Clarkson despite all the data about you know peak production and so forth. And so my my takeaway has always been when it comes to you know the, the fancy charts and the numbers and so forth is that you know the the point is not to make you smarter the point is to make you less like not to do something dumb right I mean like that's usually what happens to teams that just think they're the smartest guys in the room which is they just do something that's so obviously dumb but you know the bias of psychology well you know he's he's a cup winner you know the, the Dave Boland contract and so. So that's kind of like how I approach that. And also knowing what these stats do, like I read all the time, like going through like some of the models and kind of what they do, like not every stat, you know, whenever I see, <laughs> not to call anybody out, but whenever I see people talking about like, oh, well, this person has this expected goals for differential and they're, they're actually really good. No, that's, that's not like, <laughs> you don't use that because there's a catch-all number to give you a value point on a specific player. You use it ideally because you understand what the stat means. Like everybody's always talking about game score, which we're not going to explain on a podcast because who gives a shit, but like game score tries to capture offense from game to game. So if you're using that for a defenseman, you're doing it wrong. And so that's, this is all also part of me just being like an angry <laughs> <laughs> an angry writer I'm over here I've got my calculator upside down I wrote the word boobies and I'm pretty happy <laughs> <laughs> you know and I will say this too it takes there is a skill set to be able to understand the data and make it accessible and that's something I look for whenever I get writers because I think right now across any sport uh, finding people who could it's never been easier to find people who work with information to work with analytics whatever term you want to use but it is definitely a skill to be able to make it accessible and also to write well and that's really what i'm looking for first is you know where this is a, a, a writing first brand that's what d is people have been reading this place for a long time because of the writing so it has to be well written that you know the information is just supporting the writing it's just making it more robust i love that i love that yeah it's 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 always you want to know, and it, the, in my opinion, right, the more the more that you can understand what's going on. You talked about barrier to entry earlier, right? That enriches it enriches the viewing experience to know what's going on beyond. Oh, this player just scored a goal, therefore he must be good. This player didn't, therefore he must be bad, right? So it definitely adds to it, but it can be overwhelming. And and if if you are looking at the wrong data points and and drawing the wrong conclusions and getting kind of buried by all of this, then you go the other direction. All of a sudden it makes even less sense. And that barrier to entry seems even higher. Oh, wow. I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm having trouble grasping, you know, why an icing just got waived. And now I have to digest that game score is actually not a statistic I should use to evaluate the quality of a defenseman. And what's this plus minus thing? Ah, crap. I'm just going to, just going to go, I'll, I'm going to go watch some old big bang reruns. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I do want to segue a little bit and, and talk about the team itself. Right. So we've talked about kind of how you covered, how it shaped the market. 
let's get to the to the roster itself, if that's all right. And and just starting with what are your general perspectives of the DeBoer hire, right? Is this a good thing for the team, bad? Like, what does this mean heading into next season? David, you go first. Because <laughs> oh, you're I, the I, man who wrote the I was going to say, that's a, that's a veteran. You've pulled that veteran move twice now. I ask a question, you make David answer it first, then you, <laughs> you, you come in on top. It's perfect. It's beautiful. You know, it's, it's, you know, I like, again, like I just, I'm trying not to kind of repeat stuff that I've written, which is that I think when it comes to DeBoer, I was go back to, he's going to get the most out of the roster, which other, you know, even to a lesser extent rough, you could say like, maybe didn't get the most of the work, got the most out of them offensively, but defensively eh, a little less so because they really weren't. And it wasn't just always goaltending a couple seasons under rough. Yeah, it was, it was goaltending, but not all of them. And so I, I, it's he's the kind of guy that I like. I, again, I, I'm always going to err on the side of like swinging, like if you're going to fail, fail spectacularly, swing big. That's why I still maintain Gronberg, Mark Savard. These would have been my choices. I think because I think with these sort of new coaches, um, it's, it's not a guarantee that they're going to be good with like younger players, which you want to see, but also that they get to develop with the team. And I think there's something to that in the same way that Cooper – in Tampa and then Bedner in uh, Colorado also developed with the team. Right. So bringing in a guy who already feels like he knows everything is just going to like institute his system. Doesn't always work. Um, I think DeBoer is going to work, but I am afraid that he's going to do what in a different way, more successfully, at least revenue wise, the same thing that all the other coaches have done, which is just kind of tread water, you know, yeah, they're going to make the playoffs, but without like a real concerted effort to improve the roster, like say getting savvy, trading FAXA, Hudobin, bringing in someone like Ilya Mikheyev, who I think is really underrated winger. That's going to be a UFA, you know, stuff like that. Then it's just, it's going to be the same thing. My thing that intrigues me about it is the stars haven't, you know, this is me being the try to think about everything in the market, try to think big picture type dude that I try to be. I this the stars haven't tried to hire quite like this one, whereas two of the big teams across town have, right? Uh in the last 15 years. You know, on the one hand, you have the Cowboys who did this with Mike McCarthy, you know, hired him two years ago, and very similar vibe of guy who has had success, but did he have success because he's a good coach or did he have success because of his circumstances? And we're two years into this thing and uh, I think it's definitely trending towards, all right, this was because he happened to work with Aaron Rodgers and Aaron Rodgers is one of the best quarterbacks of all time. And this guy is probably in over his head. But the flip side is 15 years ago, the Dallas Mavericks brought in Rick Carlisle. And both of these guys are in their 50s, just like Pete DeBoer is. Rick Carlisle, very good coach who had some very seemingly unfixable flaws in his two prior stops at Detroit and Indiana seen as a total retread, a guy who is good but not great, who could shore up stuff that they are bad at but doesn't necessarily have what it takes to get him over the top. And then Rick changed. Rick evolved a lot of ways. He took some of the pedal off the metal. He delegated more to his players and became an even better tactician. And the Mavericks won a championship when they were not the best team in the playoffs that year. So where does this go? Uh, that's what's so fascinating to me because we're so conditioned to assume that we'll never get better at a certain point and more often than not it doesn't but they have a co-tenant in the same building where it did and it did work so you know the floor is that it's gonna be better than last year right be like he's just a pete DeBoer is just a lot more qualified to do this the rick bonus was but what if it 
does get better than that. I don't know. I, am I expecting that? No. But as someone who's just seen how this is played in wildly different ways across town, I'm so fascinated by how this is going to go in this third case when the stars are the ones trying it for the first time. Right. And really, at this point, you kind of have to just say the jury's out. You know, certainly DeBoer has had a couple different teams. You can take a look at the at the breakdowns of San Jose and, and Vegas, and they're certainly different teams as in they, you know, the, the, the players that he was given were, were different. And, and he seemed to make some adjustments into how he handled that. And and so at this point, I think the interesting part is, one, what kind of adjustments does DeBoer make with the players that he has? Uh, and then also beyond that, you know, we only have a couple of weeks, but I'm interested in seeing how this draft ends up working because I, you know, DeBoer, DeBoer said that he wanted to, to make sure that Jim Neal was around and, and a couple of weeks is long enough to kind of be able to set up. Uh, this is a Pete DeBoer draft board that, uh, that recognizes where we need to be in, in the next couple of years. Yeah, and, and I think that's interesting to me as well as I'm interested in seeing how the players respond because I I, I actually like that DeBoer even in his hiring, right, the whole culture of mediocrity thing got referenced again. And I think it will be interesting to see, you know, we've all, in, in a lot of areas, the chatter has been, oh, thank goodness there's there's a coach now, which I think is a little bit unfair to, to Rick Bonus, even though I, you know, wasn't always his his biggest booster. He did certain things well, but you know the perception for DeBoer is going to be now. Here's a guy that can potentially make some adjustments and could potentially find some options in the lineup that his predecessor was you know either unable or unwilling to to really explore. The flip side is, what if we get you know two three months into the season and you know Jamie Ben is still a you know, 50, you know, still is still a maybe third line center, potentially a winger. Who knows? Um, you know, what if Tyler Sagan is still scuffling? What if they still can't generate anything outside of, you know, that that one top line? Right. That's it's it's one of the you know, people have made the comments about it's unusual that, you know, a, a general manager gets five coaching hires. Well, this is a core group of players that's now burned through a couple of different people behind the bench. And sort of running out of you know running out of reasons that it's not them for lack of a better you know less combative way to explain it right but was was the board really bought brought in for that core was the board brought in for the new core i mean but the thing about it is and we'll get into this because we're going to talk a little bit about you know free agency and what options the stars have the reality of the Dallas Stars is if they're going to succeed to a to a degree this coming season, they need the new core to stay good, but they also need to wring a little bit more out of the old core. He kind he kind of has to do both, in my opinion. I, I will say that I think that you know even though I'm kind of not like super high on like DeBoer, I do think that even if Ben and Sagan are kind of still sort of struggling and kind of chugging along, that Robertson, Hints, and Heiskin are are so good. That even if DeBoer can get more, like just five, ten percent more out of them, that'll be enough to push Dallas into looking like a contender, even if I don't think they are. Especially in the context of like, hey, do you have a roster that can be Colorado? Fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> so how do we get there, right? Tell me how how does the you know the the Avalanche are now the gold standard, right? And and you know pitch pitch me on this team closing the gap. 
<laughs> this is the silence. Yikes. <laughs> well, I, here, I'll, I'll, I'll kick in on this. The, the last thing you want to do is to become avalanche light. And and what you have to do is, is since this is a league that, that copies everything, what everybody else does, what you have to do is analyze how you beat the the current Colorado avalanche and do that as opposed to try and become the avalanche. Yeah, no, like absolutely, and th- and that's kind of the thing that, uh, like w- when I when Mike and I put together that like kind of what can we learn from like Tampa and Colorado, um, you know, it's it's not like you know Tampa could have easily won that series, you know, if Point had been like healthy and stuff like that. So I think what Dallas just tries to do is like, what players can we bring in, in the same way like Tampa did when they brought in. Um, like Hagel and Paul, or even bat, you know, Goodrow and Coleman, like they, these, this, these were like debt pieces. We talk all day about like, oh, well, you know, they know how to win and they were gritty. No, they were talented players that accentuated the roster. And so to me, like finding those subtle moves is, is I think how Dallas gets there. Like Brett Kulak, for example, like in Edmonton, he's a really good underrated low key shutdown defenseman. Like they're, they're like a ton of players. I mean, if you're looking at like Fords or Connor Brown, presumably on the like trading block, Zach Hyman clone, like fantastic. Question is like, is Neil willing to give up pieces? And that's where I think, and we can get crazy here, where I do think they have enough assets that if they want, they can absolutely make some noise. Like, yeah, sure. Say, saying goodbye to someone like Maverick Bork or uh, probably, you know, Ty Delandrew is really like the fall guy here. Uh, but, um, you know, saying goodbye to one of those assets may be the kind of thing that they need to do if they want to be that contender. And let me ask, and, and Michael, pull you on this one because I'd like your perspective and Mark as well. Given where Dallas is right now and given the standard of excellence in the conference and in the league, is the answer to cash in some of those futures, and let's assume they do it the right way and bring in the right pieces, yada, 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 right? Is the best path for this team to cash in and find reinforcements that way? Or are the stars at a stage where maybe the right play is to wait for the Johnsons and the Borks and you know the the next generation to come through? And and is is time, in fact, the best asset Dallas has right now? Yeah, I think it's the latter, especially because with Wyatt Johnston in particular, I don't think they're going to be waiting much longer. Like, I think he's going to be playing this year. And if that's the case, then suddenly if you're talking about two more guys. How long are you really waiting? I mean, to me, the two lessons to take from Colorado are, one, don't be afraid to lean into your youth and to trust them in key spots. And two, uh, especially when Miro, the player Miro will endlessly be compared to, Kale McCarr, <laughs> It wins the Norris and, you know, wins the Stanley Cup. Optimize your and best the defender. Smythe. And the Conn Smythe. And the Conn Smythe, of if, course. If Just we're going to bury right? that comparison, let's go ahead and make yeah, it hurt as much as it possibly can. Right, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, listen, I'm I'm one of these people that's of the mind that Biro Heskini can do all of the things that Kale McCarr could do. He just needs to be optimized. And Colorado can never be accused of not taking their best defensive asset and turning him loose. So – these are basic things that are within Dallas's control. Just trust the kids when they're up. That isn't to say fast track all three of the forwards and the minors, but it does mean when they're playing, give them real opportunities. Don't bury their minutes. Make sure they're on important power play shifts, all of that. And in turn, make sure that if your best player is your best defenseman, 
work from there. Work from there down. What do we have to do to make that guy the best version of himself and figure the rest out later? Because especially if and probably when John Klingberg isn't here anymore, there is no excuse not to do everything you can to optimize your one superlative defender. I, I believe uh, Ryan Suter had, would would potentially <laughs> like a word, <laughs> you know, and and, uh, which, and, and Mark, I, I know, kind of has some opinions about this. But I mean, one of the things I would just add is that um, I, I see people kind of sometimes like talk about like, well, you know, high skin, maybe, you know, he's not inherently like that, you know, like assertive, you know, he's he's really great. But, you know, maybe like the offense isn't in him because, well, he doesn't have that sort of like, uh, you know, that, that sort of killer mentality. And I'm just like, bullshit. Bullshit. I mean, you a coach tells a player what to do, the player will do it, you know. And and Heisken is creative enough, and you see that in a lot of like, like, here we go with analytics, but you look at a lot of like tracking data with like retrievals, rushes. Heisken is kind of right there with McCarr, and even his first year, like analytically, they were very similar. So I do think that McCarr is just inherently better at certain things offensively than Heisken, but that isn't to say that if Heisken is just tied to the hip of like Hints Robertson um tied as a good <laughs> yeah because he's never yeah for whatever bizarre reason well it's McCarr, the rather the- rather use his abilities to make sure nothing bad happens at the bottom end of the roster then yeah but and i would also you know i'm gonna go all eye test on you you know 200 hockey men but you you don't develop the the skating like we've seen we've seen end-to-end rushes we've seen you know the the ad nauseum you know pick play on Connor McDavid. Like you don't develop the high end flashes, the moments that we've seen out of Haskinen without the kind of competitive mentality that you would need to, you know, be that type of, you know what I mean? Like guys that can do that do want to do that. Generally speaking, right. You don't, you don't have people with that high end ability that are loath to use it as a rule. But I mean, I would also just add that, I do think that you can still get something approximately um, within that, within those talents. Cause I look at Heisken and like, yeah, sure. His like shots, not as good. Um, but I think his ability to sort of play on the half wall to find cross seam passes. I think there are things offensively that Heisken actually does a little bit better than McCarr. Um, and so then it's just a matter of like, well, does your, does this personnel, does this like ownership do, do the coaching staff, do they see these things and are willing to kind of just play to that player's peculiarities, which we have not seen in ages. And this is the thing that kills me about like the Nishushkin discussion, you know, which is that like, you know, players have all kinds of subtleties and you hear a lot of uh, like Russian coaches kind of talk about this, you know, where, you know, North American coaching largely doesn't respect those peculiarities. And I think that's why like development sometimes kind of struggles, you know, why we have like, you know, Tortorella versus Duclair and Columbus and so forth, or Bugnevich versus AV in New York. Um, and so that's another thing they got to figure out. Another thing that they have to bring in, you know, fresh voices. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're 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 hitting my my take on all this right here. I mean, if you if you manage people, you know that your job is to bring out people's strengths and to hide their weaknesses, and and, and ramming something down somebody's throat is just not going to happen in a positive way. And that certainly happened with Nichushkin. It probably happened with Honka. Um, uh, it, you know. Bad managing is bad managing, even if it's old hockey guys who are deciding that's what they want to do. Um, and, and then to, to, to add on to the other thing on Haskinen, 
mean, Haskinen's best year was playing with Roman Polak. Give me a break. Move Hawk, move Hawk and move Hawk and Pop up up to up up to top pair if that's what it takes. Um, have him play with Alec Petrovic. I don't care. Who gives a shit? Put him back on the left side. It's going to be at least as good or better than Polak. I mean, that's that's a pretty strong argument, I would say. And, and you know, I, I think that's right, right? This is a team, especially as we look at, you know, maybe there isn't going to be the depth that they need to be balanced. So, okay, let's let's perhaps try turning into the skid and just making, you know, creating one unit that is so overwhelming that it, it might get you there just the same. Well, I think it's what everybody hoped for, right, to see if he would ever play with Klingberg, and we got our answer with that for years and years. Yeah, and, and it's another example. If memory serves, I'm trying to I'm trying to remember some of the the fine the fine data folks like you posted. But if memory serves, Klingberg and Haskinen were a rather effective pairing. Yeah, especially if you're down one, if you don't have those guys on the ice at the same time coming down the stretch, you are stupid. That was insane to me. Like how it's. You know, this is, and, and again, this goes back to like why I think uh, sort of analytics is so valuable, which is, um, which is precisely because you know everyone always talks about like, well, you know, you you post like a, a like a silly like fancy wins above replacement chart and like, well, but but context, I'm like the eyes require the same thing, right? You know, like you know, we, if you're watching video, you're still going to need context, and and so like I bring that up just to say that every data point every piece of information is saying you know what if you put your two best defensive players they're actually going to produce quite well and yet for whatever reason like they've relied on like Sutter for like you know late ties and and just just stuck in this mode of like well as long as we you know if we're down 1-0 as long as we don't go go down 2-0 hey we, we gotta we gotta play for that <laughs> the, the moral victory Dallas Stars do you think part of it is if if you don't use Suter in those situations. You're admitting that the Suter deal was a horrible catastrophe. Like, is part of it that that like, yeah, I don't want to necessarily say reputation and ego, but I'm going to go ahead and say reputation and ego. Like, if, if you sign Suter like you did, and he can't function in your top four, that's that's a bad look, man. And and I think to some degree maybe you're guilty of okay, well I can't I can't have that, so I'm just going to put him there and hope that. Nobody asks any questions. Well, I mean, I don't know if I buy that only because you got to remember Rick Bonus was coaching for his job and Rick wasn't the one who signed Ryan Suter, right? I mean, who knows how much input he did or didn't have in him, but it's not like that's Rick's thing to wear whether or not it succeeds. Rick needs to win games to keep his job. I think it just, he played because uh, Rick, you know, being who he is, he trusts veterans and he trusts leadership and Ryan Suter does have a lot of intangibles. So to me, it's more just consistent with what Rick Bonus valued versus some referendum on either the front office telling him to play him or him playing him to justify the front office's decisions. Yeah, I guess it's hard not to. Yeah, and then looking at options, right? I, I think as, as I will, I will say as, as intriguing as he is long-term and probably deserved more of a look than he got, I don't know that this was necessarily a case where there were a ton of other options banging down the door on Dallas's blue line for the minutes that Suter was getting. Right? Is, is Harley was was Har, was Harley ready this year? So real quick, let's keep in mind Brian Suter played more minutes per game than John Klingberg. So I mean, 
it would be one thing if it's like, oh, yeah, we trust Sutter. And yeah, sure, Klingberg did struggle. But I mean, I, I don't know how, you know, honestly, like I'm, I'm completely just <laughs> done trying to figure that out. So, Mark, take over. Uh, my head's going to explode. <laughs> my well, no, it's not, I, I view Kling, Klingberg coming up always kind of kind of reminded me of Ghost Despair in, in Philly. And and Philly eventually soured on him, and and they they shipped him to Purgatory in Arizona, and I mean his numbers weren't absolutely spectacular on a fairly terrible Yotes team, but he had a bit of a resurgence, and and that's kind of the way I view Klingberg. You put him in the right situation, and he's going to he he he's going to just shine, and he he may not shine for seven or eight years on a long term deal. But if you're talking about John Klingberg over the next four or five years, um, I, I think you're getting a really good player. And I'd be I'd be incredibly disappointed to see him show that on a different team. And and, and I mean, you, you kind of have to take a look at that bad contracts as they age as as the price of, of being relevant now. Um, and and with the team where it's at right now, I think that's maybe a price pay you know the irony too is that like Klingberg's best season was actually under Ken Hitchcock you know the so-called defensive system right and he actually played really well defensively that year Mm -hmm. so to me like it's absolutely in Klingberg I mean whether or not like they should bring him back I I think is maybe like a separate discussion and I don't know if we want to kind of like focus on that here but um, but I do think Klingberg is very sort of much more his game is a lot more malleable than I think people give him credit for well, it's, that's an old hockey orthodoxy problem, right? If you're if you're a player and you're good at one thing, then you have to be bad at the other. And I think that that hockey in general really struggles in with with goal scoring with goal scoring wingers, right? None of them can play defense, although some of them probably can. And with offensive or defensive defensemen, right? We we want to put we see a player like John Klingberg who has, you know, the the blue line dangles and and success on the power play and, you know, profiles obviously those are his his strengths, right? He is at his best when he is is running an offense. And then just sort of by reflex, we tack on the dot 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 must struggle in his own end, somehow forgetting that players that can retain possession and make successful outlet passes are every bit at, you know, like like getting the puck progressed out of the defensive zone onto one of your teammate sticks is one of the most effective defensive plays a player can make. And sometimes we lose sight of that and we instead think, well, he doesn't, you know, this person doesn't hit or doesn't block shots, ignoring the fact that, well, I could block three shots and kick the puck right back to the guy that shot it the first time. And the fourth one goes in. Is that good defense? Question mark, Chris Russell. <laughs> you know, didn't, didn't they give him some kind of award for, for shot blocking in Edmonton, but it just, it's it's the problem of of Klingberg and players like Klingberg is that we sometimes lose sight of the fact that um, they're like one of the one of the things I read is Austin Matthews was is a very good defensive forward and part of that is because he's good at playing defense as a forward another part of that is he scores sixty goals right and it's real hard to score sixty goals and be a drag on your team and I think that was part of, part of the issue with a lot of their you know veteran signs in recent years where. You, you have guys that fit into an archetype, and that's what Dallas loves about them, as opposed to skills that are a little bit more subtle, that link better with, you know, line mates. Uh, you know, Raffle, yeah, sure, you can put Raffle up there with Ben and Sagan, but he's not actually going to do anything for them. Like, he's not 
he can play well defensively, that doesn't mean that they can score better. And um, and so, yeah, just again, goes back to not recognizing those subtleties within players as opposed to whether or not, you know, they kind of respond to plays the right way and all the other cliches that don't actually mean anything. Well, as, as a as a fan of the man, it was, you know, Jason Spezza's kind of finale with the Dallas Stars, right? Was he a great player by that point? Absolutely not. Was he useful, right? Could they have could they have benefited from having him in the roster? Absolutely. Right? He he had moments in Toronto. So it's it's that that mentality of he he couldn't be what he was therefore he can't you know the the and i've said this before right uh, hockey teams will bend over backwards to find a way to fit a you know 35 year old stone there was a joke about you know a 35 year old with stone hands that is perceived to be able to play defense right they'll find the minutes for that guy but some some you know dipsy doodle fancy dan that can produce on the power play and maybe is suspect in his own zone that's the player that that nhl teams won't really bother themselves with yeah, and then how many zone entries would we have gotten uh, with Jason Spezza there as opposed to that, that cluster or whatever you want to call it uh, that, that we saw the last couple of years? And we're, it's, we're I just wonder, it's, it's an interesting thing. I think you're starting to see it, especially with the smart teams, but I think they are starting to look for more specialists, in particular amongst the forward ranks, in particular at the bottom of the lineup, right? Instead of instead of just two lines worth of pluggers, you're you're really starting to see teams dip their toes in, I think it was, was it Olafson? I forget his name. There was a kid in Buffalo that could score on the power play very well. You're starting to see some teams find efficiencies in players like that, and it would be very, very fun if Dallas maybe followed that trend a little bit. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to play somebody five minutes a game, why not throw throw a specialist in there, have him play power play only or penalty kill only and and run three lines. Yeah, the the risk of piling on the guy, right? We talked about this during the playoffs. Would you would Dallas have been better off giving the seven minutes a night they were playing Joel Hanley to Thomas Harley, right? But but Dallas was more comfortable knowing that in Hanley's seven minutes would look just like everybody else's seven minutes to some degree and, and nothing bad would probably happen versus Harley would be very different, right? And something bad might happen, but something good, you know, it's it's that that decision, right? Where is what is the better application of that time? By the way, did did, did Hanley even play more like regular season games than Harley? He didn't. I, I think he played. Oh my it, God, Harley. It was about the same. Yeah, Harley. Like, those Bears, Steve Bears type things Har- where that does not <laughs> register in my brain. But Harley had never played in the series against Calgary. Oh, Harley oh. wasn't capable of playing in the series against Calgary. Because if you haven't done something before, you can't do it for the first time, is, yeah, is what I believe. Yeah. Hey, yeah, Hanley played 44 games and Harley played 34. Oh, okay, damn. Let's look at playoffs, okay. But it's, it's going to be, it, it is going to be interesting because in so many ways, right, from the, the shift in tone of draft classes from the, and not to disparage them, but from the, you know, the likes of, of Scott Glennie and, and the, the kind of big body high ceiling guys to the Borks and the Johnsons and the Stranges and, and, you know, there, there's been a philosophy shift in who they're picking. You know, Jim Nill, of course, is approaching the end of his contract. There's, there's a brand new coach really in a lot of ways this is a team at a crossroads and i think heading into the season it's it's going to be very fascinating to me to see if it actually is right do we get more of the same do we get change um you know what's going to happen and i think that's a good place 
for us to wrap up. And I want to just a quick round robin, and, and I'm going to to force, um, you know, we'll, we'll force Mike to go first this time. <laughs> <laughs> David, a little bit of a respite. But, you know, what is, and it can be as specific or as broad as you want it to be, but what is one prediction you have for what fans should expect out of the Dallas Stars this coming season? Oof. Yeah, really put me on the spot there. Uh, I just broadly will say, maybe this is a tame one, but I think it can't be overstated given how uh, at best underwhelmed and at worst frustrated so many people were with the DeBoer hire. I think it's just going to be a lot smoother than it's been the last couple of years under Ponus. I just, you can't underestimate the, just the skill and qualification gap between those two men. And for as many flaws as, Pete DeBoer might have, and I actually don't think there are quite as many as people want to believe. I think he's just going to be more flexible. I think he's going to, you know, as we talked about, he's going to make adjustments. I think the the product will be more aesthetically pleasing. I just think it's going to look like a better oiled machine. What does that mean at the end of the day? I don't know in terms of, you know, <laughs> do they still get out of the first? Like, does that mean they get out of the first round? Who the hell knows? Does that mean that this was worth it in the end? Couldn't tell you. But I do think because a large part of sports isn't just the end game, but the fact that you are committing your time and attention to something for half of a year, I do think it's going to be a much more pleasant half a year of hockey than what was happening over the last two years. I feel pretty confident about that, actually. I, I agree. And, and before, and we'll go to you, uh, Mark, I'm throwing the dart. We'll go to you next. But I, I will say as well, the thing about the DeBoer hire, and I have come around and I'm now pro the hire. It, it There's an old, and I, I don't remember who, originated this but there's an old adage right if you've got a sports if you need to improve it's much much easier to go from you know deficient to average than it is to go from good to great yes and i think one of the things that's being lost in the DeBoer hires it is so there there is so much of more of a benefit if he can there's so much more of a benefit to just getting to a level of competency versus like you're only going to get so much more out of out of the you know you're not going to it's harder to go from two to one than it is to go from 30 to 25 and or even 30 to 20 right and the difference from 30 to 20 is much bigger than from two to one and so i think in that i think it's a good hire and i think that's to me what i'm most interested in is what does this team look like with what i perceive to be a much more um you know a much better coach not to you know dance around it Okay, my, my turn? Yes, sir. Okay, I'm going off the board. Um, Texas Stars are going to win the Central Division, and they're going to be more fun to watch than the Dallas Stars. <laughs> wow. As, as, a, as, as someone that's 10 minutes from that arena, I'm very, very happy about this prediction. Why do you say so? Uh, the, the future of the Dallas Stars... Uh, some of it, uh, Wyatt Johnson may may make it up to Dallas, but you're going to start seeing these small skilled guys showing up in in Cedar Park. The defense is going to be largely intact, and they've learned a lot, and they're going to have some goaltending. and And I think Neil Graham is finally hitting his stride as coach. So I think it's all cylinders, and it's going to be exciting hockey. I love it. I love it. All right, David, you got you got rest, but what's what's yours? So it's going to be an asterisk to what Mike said, which is you're going to get all that. Uh, okay, just one yeah. second, though. I specifically set this up to give you more time and protect you from Mike chicanery, and your answer is just to go up Mike's <laughs> <laughs> The editor poisoning and everything like always. <laughs> <laughs> 
So yes, DeBoer is is going to do well. The team's going to look good. It's going to look very competent. I think even just a basic level of competency is going to make Dallas probably even like on par with say like Minnesota or St. Louis. But there's there's really major asterisks here, and it's something I mentioned in the article about DeBoer, which is his obsession with having people block shots. There will be injuries to key players, whether that happens in the playoffs or the regular season. That's something you can like. I, I expect to see somebody's going to get like screwed up by a block shot, as they should. They're human beings, um, and then then that's going to be a topic discussion. People are going to be like, "Oh, well, should, should more have them block shots?" I mean, whatever you think about like that, you know, uh, tactic in general, you know, players are going to do that anyways. But uh, but I do think. I do think somebody important is going to be injured from a block shot. And uh, I don't think I'm going out of a limb with that, but I do think it'll be a topic discussion eventually. Well, thanks for signing you that topic at T Magazine circa December. Have fun. I say thank you for willing that into existence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get excited, well, everybody. I mean, Dallas has been remarkably healthy the last couple of years. I'll give it that. <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, that, this, this is one of the reasons why everybody's been stuck down in Cedar Park is, is you usually expect a little back and forth. And certainly on the defensive end, since that one disastrous year, we haven't seen – you know, Harley's really the only guy who's mm-hmm. come up uh, offensively. A little bit of Tufty, a little bit of Damiani. I mean, if, if you're if you're taking hits on a couple of different players, you're moving guys from your HL team up to the NHL team, and and Dallas hasn't had to do that much. Fair enough. As long as it's not the uh, the plague, I guess you're you're you're. That was my my knee jerk was remembering the uh, the storm truncated season, but I guess in terms of of actual on ice injuries, you're very right. Well, yeah. Think that it'll be interesting, and, and I, first off, I want to thank you both for joining us, um, Mike and David and, and Mark. Obviously, thank you as well. But you're more of a regular, so you're less spectacular to me. No offense. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for having but, us. This um, is a blast, and hopefully, we can do it again sometime. I hope that we will, uh, because I think that there's, you know, my predictions. I just think there's going to be a lot to talk about this season. I think the Dallas Stars in good ways and bad are a very fascinating team at a very fascinating moment in their arc. And I'm, I'm just, I think we're going to have a lot to digest this season as fans. I hope that it will be good. Um, some of it will probably be bad. I'm enough of a realist, but I, that's to me, the real, my biggest takeaway is that there's just a lot going on, man. We've got, you know, guys that might be washed and we've got a kid that finished 13th in, in MVP voting and, you know, a goalie that just had an all-timer playoff series and, you know, just so much is happening. And it, it's just going to be a very interesting time to, uh, to, to watch along as Stars fans. As always, thank you for for listening. Don't forget to download. Don't forget to like KT for mixing it all together. Uh, and then, you know, like I said once again, Mike, David, you want to get any any plugs in? Anything upcoming that we need to be aware of? Uh, I mean, just you know, tune it into our regular coverage. There's always something going on, obviously with David. But you know, if you like the other Dallas sports teams, if you like stories that have nothing to do with the big Dallas sports teams, I recently wrote for the magazine about uh, the coolest sports owners in Dallas, who are a pair of uh, married Asian American doctors with three kids under five who own an ultimate Frisbee team. And they're awesome. And that'll be online soon. So we're doing all kinds of sports stuff. Uh, D magazine, click the little sports tab. It's called strong side. We think you'll have a good time there, no matter what you're into. And don't forget to check out Mike's intercollegiate meet judging article. <laughs> it, it is, it is its own world. I did write about this for sports illustrated a few years ago and, uh, <laughs> still one of my favorites. and still one of the ones that people always want to talk about. I Go red it. Raiders. 
Well, thanks all, and we will be back with more off-season coverage next week. Adios. Adios.